the gap year, the subject of much yearning and derision, of internet memes and misty-eyed and blinkered nostalgia, of much-heard refrains repeated by first-year university students and boomers in offices, the best year of my life, I really found myself, I've never learned so much about the world so quickly, where entire cities and even nations are reduced to items ticked off a list. We did Peru, we did Kenya, we did Thailand. For what it's worth, I did Australia. The concept of a gap year, where mostly white, middle and upper class young adults take a year or so to sometimes work, earn money and go travelling, was popularised in the 1960s and 70s. The baby boomers had come of age amid war, nuclear armament and a burgeoning free love movement and longed to stretch their legs away from their great or silent parents. They momentarily shirked off the expectations placed on them, medicine, law, engineering, and worked in cafes and bars instead before collecting their hard-earned money and taking to the seas and skies, volunteering in Ethiopia, interrailing across Europe, trekking along what was known as the Hippie Trail through India, Pakistan and Nepal, these boomers became parents themselves to Gen X and Millennials who begat Gen Z, all growing up in the shadow of successive financial crashes, televised terrorism and an increasing climate crisis, all the while flicking through photos of their parents' international heydays in hot places, mountains and markets and wide open seas, far-flung reaches of the world, a million miles away from exams and schedules and strict dinner times. Almost 2,000 students took a gap year last year, seeking new sights, sounds and smells, looking for that undefinable something. Though it remains very much the preserve of those who tend to be from more financially secure backgrounds and is easy to ridicule, it's certainly no bad thing to want to see and experience more of the world, and it's no easier for the parents left behind. What can often be so aspirational for the young, freedom, adventure, uncertainty, is often and naturally horror for the parent. They fear for their children's safety in these unknown places, always. They worry about their health and happiness, and stress constantly that their children must be careful, and fret that careful still might not be enough. Even the parents who were, in their day, daring adventurers themselves, and even remain as such, even they wish sometimes that their children were not such adventurous spirits. They will think back to their own instances of youthful daring and perceived invincibility, and say, do as I say, not as I do. They will stand at airports and train stations, at front doors on early mornings, as taxi doors close and hands wave, feeling that awful fear that only a parent knows when a precious piece of themselves heads out into the wild, wild west of the world, and they pray that nothing goes wrong. And if it does, well, then they pray for answers, 
for hope, for closure. They pray not to be another statistic or cautionary tale. They pray that theirs will not be the kind of story that comes after these words. You're listening to Unexplained, and I'm Richard McLean-Smith. It is March 14th, 2014. Two young women in Amersfoort in the Netherlands, about 30 kilometres southwest of Amsterdam, have finished their degrees at the University of Utrecht and are preparing for the trip of a lifetime. They are Lisanna Frone and Chris Kramers, and they are best friends. Lisanna is athletic, born on September 24th, 1991. She is six feet tall with ash blonde hair and dark, soulful eyes. She is a volleyball player and is known as a thoughtful, intelligent and empathetic young woman. Despite her natural shyness, she has an adventurous spirit. She tries her hand at skydiving and is a keen walker in her native Netherlands. She loves to take photographs and is studying applied psychology. Chris, her friend and university roommate, is in many ways her opposite. Born August 9th, 1992, she is outgoing, spontaneous and outspoken, with vivid strawberry blonde hair and bright blue eyes. She's just completed her studies in cultural social education, specialising in art, and has decided to continue with a postgraduate programme in art history after their trip. She loves theatre, festivals and the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Chris and Lisanna met while working part-time jobs at the same cafe, hoping to save enough money to go travelling. They decided to share a flat and ultimately travel together. They are 22 and 21 respectively. They decide on Panama, a small tropical country immediately north of Colombia, a popular hotspot with tourists, expats and retirees, Panama boasts beautiful landscapes, an entirely new pace of life, and the opportunity to learn Spanish and volunteer with charities. On March 15th, their parents accompany them to Schiphol Airport, just outside of Amsterdam. They hug and kiss their daughters goodbye, clasping their faces and kissing them on the cheek. The two young women, Lisanna and Chris, wearing light jackets and scarves, laugh and smile and roll their eyes at each other, a little embarrassed by it all. Eventually they make their final exchanges, then pull their big rucksacks from the floor and hook them onto their backs. They give each other a look, as if to say, let's go. Then they turn one final time to their parents, no longer able to contain their excitement, and wave goodbye. And then they turn and head through security. Their parents stay to watch, even just to see the back of their heads as they disappear into the distance until they can no longer see them anymore.
Chris and Lisanna's first stop is San Jose, Costa Rica. They stay there for a couple of days before moving on to Bocos del Toro in Panama, which they describe as beautiful and cosy. And it really is beautiful. There are houses built on stilts right out to sea. The colours are vivid and vibrant, as though it's a place of abundant saturation. The colour dialed right up on the TV. The sea is jewel bright and the sky is clear. The lush plant life presents more shades of green than they ever thought possible. It's all taxis and buses, borders and boats, the stuff of a gap year adventurer's dreams. They make friends, find starfish on white sandy beaches, sunbathe under palm trees, they drink straight out of coconuts, they talk and laugh all the time. They write in their diaries about all the delicious food they eat, the beautiful locations they visit, about the time they danced in the warm Panamanian rains and their slowly improving Spanish. They visit mangrove swamps and see sloths and dolphins in the wild. In Bocas, staying at the Spanish school, meeting other young travellers, they revel in the veritable paradise of their new surroundings. For their parents, each message home, be it a WhatsApp or precious Skype call, brings a warm, reassuring feeling and smiles at the thought of their daughters so far away, yet seeming so happy. But Chris and Lisanna are not in Bocas for long. After a couple of weeks, they move on to Boquete in the Chiriqui region to continue with their Spanish lessons and to begin volunteering at a nursery school. On their last day before they leave, Chris takes a moment to write a quick line in her diary. The time we had in Bocas was really wonderful. We had a real holiday there. It felt like goodbye because we probably won't be coming back. On March 29th, 2014, Lisanna and Chris take a small bus to Boquete in western Panama. It too is a lush and verdant place, a small town on the Caldera River. It's known as Little Switzerland because of its many crisscrossing streams and brooks, illuminating the area in crystal clear water and fertile green. The still active, Baru Volcano, 40 minutes away, enriches the soil, contributing to the unique ecosystem of the surrounding Chiriqui Highlands. It's no wonder the region is home to coffee plantations and so many unique species of plants and animals. They arrive eventually at Spanish by the River, an all-inclusive language school and hostel, here, travellers can take language classes and get paired with host families and also put in touch with schools and nurseries where they can volunteer. It's strange, after two weeks of independence and new friends in Bocas del Toro, to suddenly find themselves part of a family. Their hosts are friendly and used to foreign nationals with little Spanish, but all the same, those first couple of days in Boquete are a difficult transition. It's the first time in all these weeks that they feel homesick 
it soon passes, and they're excited for their first day at Aura, the nursery they've been assigned as volunteers. On March 31st, they arrive at Aura, but are given a less than friendly welcome. The staff seem a little cold and claim not to recognise them. They say they weren't expecting anyone to start work that day. Lisanna and Chris are brusquely informed that they should come back next week. The young women are thrown. This had been planned months ago, they thought. Surprised and disappointed, they head back to Spanish by the river and chat to Marjolein, one of their coordinators. They spend the day languishing in the sun, frustrated and a little anxious about the abrupt change in plans. They wait for Marjolein to find out if there is work for them elsewhere. The response is inconclusive, but Marjolein is hopeful that she can get them some work at another nursery called Casa Esperanza. She promises she'll have confirmation by the end of the next day. Lisanna and Chris are glad to hear it. They're none too keen to return to Aura after the less than warm welcome they'd received and after reading about the alternative project Casa Esperanza, they become enthused and decide that maybe it was all for the best anyway. They go for a massage to lift their spirits. They write messages to family and friends on WhatsApp and Facebook and research some possible walking tours for the week ahead and then head out for dinner. That night, Chris, pleasantly decompressed, signs off her diary with Let's go with the Panamanian flow. Tomorrow will be a new day, a new month, and a chance for a brand new start. Since arriving in Central America, Lisanna and Chris were in daily contact with their parents, and Chris with her boyfriend Stefan too. At 2pm Dutch time, 8am in Panama, on Tuesday, April 1st, Stefan got a text from Chris. She was excited about the week ahead. They'd made lots of plans, and she was looking forward to telling him all about it. But then, there was nothing. When their parents have not heard from them by Wednesday, they try texting them again, but they are met with only a thundering silence. They try to stay calm. Their daughters are, after all, having the time of their lives on the other side of the world. It isn't their priority to stay in touch. Not hearing from them is in some ways to be expected. Then, late on the Wednesday night, Lisanna's parents receive a call from the host family in Boquete. They tell them that their daughter and Chris did not come home the night before. The parents contact the agency that organised the trip and ask them to see if they can get more information. The agency calls them back soon after with more troubling news. The girls didn't just fail to come home for the night, they haven't been seen or heard from in over 24 hours by anyone. 24 becomes 48, then 72. Within days, 
Both sets of parents, both sets of parents fly out to Panama to try and figure out for themselves what is going on, knowing only one thing for certain, their daughters are missing, and not of their own volition. Bit by bit, alongside the police, they start to develop a picture of their daughter's last known whereabouts. On Tuesday, April 1st, the last time they were known to have been seen, Lisanna and Chris are thought to have had lunch with two Dutch men in town. These men were later questioned by the authorities. They said that the women told them that they'd supposedly spoken to a local guide called Feliciano about taking a hike to the Il Pianista Trail. It's a popular walk among tourists, about four kilometres north of Boquete. It's a fairly simple and clearly marked trail that takes you through the local cloud forests, the unique microclimatic jungle of the Chiriqui Highlands. It's about a four-hour round trip and leads to El Mirador, or the Overlook, a stunning viewpoint with a 360-degree panoramic of the mountainous rainforest. Most tourists walk up it, pose for a few photos, and then come straight back down. They do occasionally get lost, but they're almost always found by guides or locals, returning to town relieved, bitten and dehydrated, having been little but embarrassed by the jungle. It is a stunning landscape, the Cordillera de Talamanca, the mountain range that dominates the highlands, stretching into Costa Rica. It's full of rare plants, and the reaching fronds of vast, mossy trees house all manner of creatures. Brightly coloured hummingbirds, as well as hawks and eagles, and tiny pygmy owls, and that's just in the air. In the trees, one might find howler monkeys. On the ground, cougars, jaguars and ocelots. The jungle holds many dangers, and it's easy to just get plain lost. In the dry season from January to May, the dense jungle around the Il Pianista Trail is incredibly difficult to traverse. The winding, narrow trails and walls of trees and shrubs are almost solid. You need machetes to hack through it. Anyone straying off the path for whatever reason without the deep knowledge of the jungle, held only by very experienced guides and indigenous inhabitants of the Talamanca, such as the Ngabi people, would be in serious trouble. The Ngabe's territory today exists within Panama and Costa Rica in Central America. They mostly live within the Ngabe Bugle Comarca, a comarca being a self-governed indigenous region in the western Panamanian provinces of Chiriqui, Veracuas and Bocas del Toro. They also have five indigenous territories in southwestern Costa Rica. They, like many indigenous groups, have faced persecution, dating at least as far back as Christopher Columbus's 16th century attempt to colonise the area. There are famous stories of Ngabe leaders repelling Columbus and his men 
time and time again, but they were eventually pushed and kettled into the western mountains by the conquistadors, driven from their spread of land between the Pacific Ocean to the Caribbean Sea by the development of large banana plantations. As a result, they are some of the only people who can traverse the Cordillera de Talamanca safely and are understandably wary of outsiders, particularly government authorities who spent many years denying them a comarca of their own. The majority now live within its boundaries. In the rainy season, from May to December, to be caught unprepared or unaware is to surrender entirely to the elements. The steep terrain and heavy rainfall flood the network of rivers, streams and brooks, causing lethal fast-running river channels throughout the cloud forest. The air is hot and heavy as currents rise from the Pacific and deposit over some 135 inches of rain every year, and so the water levels rise, narrow trails become mud chutes, fog clouds vision in the middle of the day, and the runoff jettisons downhill through a myriad of sharply jagged and rocky ravines that are often obscured by the fauna of the landscape. Il Pianista, or the piano player, is so named because it climbs just so, step after step, up and up, like scales on a piano. At the top of the trail is the Continental Divide. This makes the point where the land's water divides, splitting inevitably into two. On the western side of the divide, the rushing aggregate of rivers flow downhill into the Pacific Ocean. Those to the east gather together and eventually reach the Caribbean Sea. There are many tour and guide companies operating out of Boquete and the surrounding areas, offering a range of hikes, hot spring visits and other experiences for adventure seekers. Feliciano is a guide who's lived and worked in Boquete his entire life. He offered Lisana and Chris a full package tour including a guided hike up Il Pianista and beyond to the nearby Continental Divide and an overnight stop at its ranch in the jungle on the far side of the Cordillera de Talamanca. For reasons unknown, they put him off. According to Feliciano, who was also interviewed by the police, the women agreed to meet him the next day to undertake his tour, but they never showed up. At about 10am on the Tuesday, Lisanna and Chris supposedly took a taxi from their host family's house into Boquete. Some say they were then seen having brunch with the two Dutchmen, before heading off toward the Il Pianista trail. The same trail that Feliciano said he'd agreed to take them on the following day. Perhaps they never intended to go with Feliciano. Maybe they simply didn't want to pay for a hike that many tourists manage alone. Perhaps they didn't want to go into the jungle with a stranger who suggested they stay at his ranch. Perhaps they'd heard some of the complaints that had been made against Feliciano over the years, allegations of inappropriate behaviour around female clients, for example. 
Either way, they decided to hike alone. The trail is clearly marked now. At its end is situated a huge sign, which makes it clear that other trails leading off from the main one are not for tourists and not maintained by the National Park Rangers. Often the sign is not necessary. During the rainy season, the other trails boast thigh-high mud and a dangerous twisting whose very nature would convince all but the most confident to stay away. But at the time, in 2014, there was no sign, and the rains had not yet arrived. Some say they went straight to the trail and were accompanied by Azul, the host's family dog. Over time, the details have become as dense and foggy as the jungle itself, overgrown with retellings and changed statements. The witness testimony we can verify is what the women were wearing on the day they disappeared. Light clothing, vests and shorts. They carried only Lisanna's small backpack with them, suggesting that whatever walk they were planning was not intended to be lengthy or arduous. Later that night, Azul meaning blue in English, appeared back at the host family's house without Lisanna and Chris. The following morning, April 2nd, Feliciano, the guide with whom they supposedly made an appointment with the day before, reported that they never arrived to meet with him. And so the alarm was raised. Cena Proc the country's National Civil Protection Service claim they began aerial searches on April 3rd, two days after the young women were last seen alive. A ground search begins the day after, but local guides disagree. They claim that they organised their own groups in those initial 24 to 48 hours and that Sinaproc were not involved until April 6th four days after the young women were first reported missing. In any case, once Sinaproc and the government got involved, it said that volunteers were cut out of the search. Red tape and bureaucracy seemed to suddenly overwhelm the process, as if the Panamanian authorities were keen to preserve the region's tourist reputation at all costs. Local tour guide Feliciano is involved in the search, however. He speaks to the authorities, claims to aid Sinaproc for many days, and even meets the women's families when they arrive in Boquete on April 6th, desperate for answers. Perhaps this is significant. Perhaps it is not. When Lisanna and Chris's parents arrive, they immediately offer a $30,000 reward for any information leading to the discovery of their daughter's whereabouts. But the reward just seems to complicate things. It is a life-changing amount of money. And no sooner than it's announced, a plethora of tips come flooding in. Each have to be looked into and followed up on consuming time and resources, and each tip amounts to very little. All the while, the searches continue, but they are messy and poor.
poorly coordinated. The women told no one where they were going exactly, and the investigation becomes confused by conflicting eyewitness accounts and changing testimonies. Some groups comb the nearby Baru volcano, others continue to search deep into the jungle. On April 7th, a Sinaproc team spends the night in the jungle looking for the women. They call out and use light signals, hacking through the pitch black with machetes, but by midnight they've found nothing. They continue day and night searches, bringing in dogs to help, but all of it is to no avail. By now, the women have been missing for 10 days. Sinaproc and the Panamanian authorities seem prepared to concede that they are no match for the jungle. They reduce their search efforts and decrease the resources. The rainy season is imminent, and if the search was impossible during the dry weather patterns, it will be entirely futile in a few days' time. A Dutch-led attempt sees a new team of dogs and people flown out from the Netherlands, but the rains begin their deluge, and the teams return to the Netherlands, frustrated and empty-handed. For Lisanna and Chris's parents, it is an unrelenting nightmare. Their daughters were supposed to return to them, They were not supposed to be here, without them, traipsing through the endless jungle, willing it to give up its secrets. But the jungle does not speak. In the end, they too are forced to give up and return home. At night, they are haunted by the endless green, how it swallows sounds and smells, devours the senses, Local guides talk about the madness that can descend when lost in the jungle, when the rains dilute all trace of you, when all the trees look the same, when dusk swiftly descends and all the many pairs of eyes begin to glow in the gloom. It is so easy to lose your way. It is so hard to find it again. You've been listening to Unexplained Season 7, Episode 12, The Jungle Never Sleeps, Part 1. The second and final part will be released next Friday, December 22nd. This episode was written by Ella McLeod and Richard McLean Smith. Unexplained is an AV Club Productions podcast created by Richard McLean Smith. All other elements of the podcast, including the music, are also produced by me, Richard McLean-Smith. Unexplained, the book and audiobook, with stories never before featured on the show, is now available to buy worldwide. You can purchase from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Waterstones and other bookstores. Please subscribe to and rate the show wherever you get your podcasts, and feel free to get in touch with any thoughts or ideas regarding the stories you've heard on the show. Perhaps you have an explanation of your own you'd like to share. You can find out more at unexplainedpodcast.com and reach us online through Twitter at unexplainedpod and Facebook at facebook.com forward slash unexplainedpodcast.